City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City City Limits. Limits. Okay, and I've just <laughs> just ridden over acres and acres of tar and cement to get here, and it is city limits, and it is the uh, energy day. It's our energy and related matters day. Yep. Um, Zeb Peak just said, "Yep, Zeb Peak, how are you?" I'm well, going well. Right. Surviving. Celebrate yesterday, did you? Yeah, mainly by uh, not doing much. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, of course, and Karina may or may not get here this morning, but I'm just uh, that, that noise is me cleaning my glasses with a bit of newspaper. Yes. Um, the, yeah. <clears throat> the, um, but Karina, of course, had a key role in, in producing and organising yesterday. So she's Yeah, Karina pretty, was doing the opposite of not doing much. That's right. She's pretty stuffed by today, I would think. So, uh, But yeah. it was a very good day's programming. So I'm going to pour... Some tea for us. You want a cup of tea? Yes, please. Right, I'll pour that and I'll pour this one over here. Uh, in the meantime. Then in the meantime, yes. Yeah, so are you going to talk? Yeah, <laughs> I'm actually going to talk. Like it's, I like know. it's radio or something. <laughs> what a surprise. Oh, hang on. I can't <laughs> no, yeah, talk very there. well while reaching over, for a tea. Yeah, there we are. Okay. Yes, right. so now. Yes, so uh, an article in The Age that my partner oh. sent me actually. Um, is titled East-West Link Road Still on Federal Books Frydenberg Keeps Billions Aside Um, and it says the on again off again road project could be revived in election year money is to be set aside for it in the federal budget um, though state labour is adamant it doesn't plan to build the East-West Link Um, and I read through most of the article and I was a bit disappointed that in giving the like story of how the east-west link was planned by the coalition and then the victorian government um announced that it would dump the project before the 2014 election but it didn't say anything about like any protests um it briefly mentioned that like according to labor victorians didn't want the road but it was just like what about all of the people that were putting in hard work to make sure that that Road yes. didn't get built. As I was sitting at the corner of Alexander Parade this morning, going to cross it on on Smith Street on the bike, uh, I looked up and saw the name, and I thought, my God, people wouldn't remember anymore. But this is the shortest state highway in the country, mm-hmm. because during the seventies anti freeway campaign down there, we we as a council at the time. Um, had our workers uh, block the road with all sorts with I think they bricked it up or something and because uh, we controlled it at that time because Alexander Parade was just a you know, very quiet thoroughfare it was you know people pl- kids played in the centre strip and everything in those days wow um, now it's just a freeway but we blocked it and so the state took an office and declared it a state highway so Alexander Parade that little bit there is just the is the shortest state highway in the state that struck me this morning. Um, also, though, um, I've been dredging up some um, some old cuttings um, for John on a day, and one I've one I've dredged up will do next time. Yeah. Related to what you just said was was the government considering 
way, way back in 77 or so, still looking at the possibility of a Doncaster rail line where they now want to build the East-West Link anyway, so to speak, all along that route. So um, so there you are. It, uh, it was originally supposed to be a railway line and it never became one. Yeah, and of course the North-East Link that is currently being planned and is in sort of like the pre-construction phase um, is also sort of ruling out the possibility of Doncaster Rail. So. Well, it, it rules it out completely, I think, if it, yeah. it goes ahead, yeah. yeah. By the way, you haven't mentioned I'm Kevin Healy, not that it matters too much, but, uh, <laughs> but also today's program, in the second half, we're going to be talking to um, Associate Professor Paddy Moriarty out at Monash about about lithium, or the extraction of rare metals generally, and is the, is the cure worse than the bite? Um, the... There are are complaints and there are protests around the world in various places, in all sorts of places, about the impact of this extraction on on environments. And while it's good, it needs to be extracted in a way that doesn't impact on on humanity. And and also, of course, I think Paddy is a bit sceptical on the future of batteries, but we'll ask him about that. I'm not sure. He might have, have, as they develop, he might have changed his mind. We'll find out. Yeah. Uh, by the way, I noticed when I did notice when I said you want a cup of tea, your eyes lit up madly. Um, <laughs> you look very pleased with yourself, and I've suddenly realised why. Because um, there was a uh, last week, and I sh- I'm sure you um, you you thought, gee, this is a possibility. When next time Kevin pours tea, border force officials seized more than fifty five million dollars worth of illegal drugs smuggled in a consignment of green tea and magnets from Thailand. So I thought. When I said green tea, I was wondering why your lights, eyes lit up, but I realised that, that was exactly the reason. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, so there you are. So I think it is, but this is definitely just green tea. By the way, I'm sorry to okay. tell you. Okay. Um, now, interesting item about um, the crowds coming back to the footy this year, which I know will have you absolutely exhilarated. <laughs> um, but um, th- they say that they, they're going to keep they're going to keep the food prices at pre-pandemic levels, which is quite wonderful, I think. Although they are introducing some some celebrity chef stuff and all that sort of thing, so I imagine they won't be all that massively cheap, unlike the pre-pandemic prices, which are incredibly cheap. Like, for instance, um, you can get a, a meat pie... For four dollars fifty, chips for four fifty, soft drinks for four seventy, and bottled water for a mere three forty. And I thought, well, <laughs> you know, if if that's keeping them at low prices, imagine if they went to high prices, what they'd be. <laughs> yeah, golly. <laughs> anyway, that that just struck me. So uh, there's definite rip-offs there. There's no doubt about that. Um, unfortunately, last week uh, one of the items that hit the news was that that ASIC, which is the um, which is the Australian Securities and Investment Commission, which is supposed to be overseeing business. Uh, the, it certainly takes its job a bit less seriously than the body they've said they set up years ago to over, overlook, oversee the uh, construction unions, which is, gets them fined millions every year. Um, we all recall during the the Royal Commission in, in New South Wales and, and here and the, what's going on in Western Australia, the massive uh, criminality that occurred at Crown Casino um, and uh, all those directors who were you know exposed as having played a key role in money laundering and not yeah. dealing with problem gambling and all the other things that happened there. Uh, now, 
Interestingly enough, ASIC last week announced that no, no director, no former director or senior executive will be charged with any crime about that. Mm. Um, they're just not going to charge them. And so that's, uh, that's good news for them, I suppose. And they can go on just being business people now. Um, and in fact, a, a woman called Helen Bird, who's a corporate governance expert at Swinburne, she came out and attacked them, saying that the decision not, was non-plus by the decision, and she said, um, "She said you've got to ask yourself what do you have to do, have to do for there to be sufficient evidence for ASIC to feel confidence briefing a case." She said that um, the fact that ASIC or a court have not made findings against the directors means they are allowed to govern after govern other companies despite the wrongdoing they oversaw at Crown. She said they contributed, this contributed to a culture of minimum accountability for individuals when companies misbehaved. This is part of a long-term narrative where the directors of major companies are non-pursued. The stories change. We go from banking to casinos, but we still have the same issue. Regulators are dealing with the consequences, not with the conduct that occurred. We've gone instead with what flows on because they've breached the law and that's been really narrowly defined in terms of, a t- of uh, money laundering, etc., etc. And on she goes. Um, so, uh, you know, and then another academic also came out and attacked it and said how awful it was and, you know, given, given the, what, what appeared to be the, the heinous performance of all these people, why they were let off. And mm-hmm. then the next day, Longo, a bloke called Longo, who's been put in charge of ASIC only recently, um, and by this government, of course, he came out and said that the um, it was the right call because the claims, the, 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 the crimes, not just call them claims, the claims were too old. Now, that too old, some of them were last year. Yeah. Um, now that seems maybe that's a long time ago in his mind, but you know, I think there's a lot of criminals who would think, gee, if if, if last year is too old to prosecute, I'm pretty right now after a couple of years not getting caught. Um, so, uh, but but they, they nonetheless they seem to go back a long way when they want to attack unions or, or people like that. But anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah just thought I'd mention that. But anyway, mm. apparently it's last year or whenever, or even in recent times, it's now too old to prosecute them for all those things that were exposed at Crown Casino. Gosh, what if it's just, you know, um, ASIC takes a while to to process a claim and then by the time it's processed, it's like, oh, actually, it's too old now. (laughs) Mm, That's right. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. So that's that. Um, Also, in terms of in terms of, you, you tend to think readers of the Financial Review are going to be relatively smart. They're going to at least be business people who think about business a bit, and that doesn't make them smart necessarily. It makes them smart at exploiting workers, that's no, that's for sure. Uh, but they have, the, they have a, every month or so, they have a, a series of questions uh, for readers to answer. And one of them is, this month was, do you believe the severe flooding in eastern Australia in the past week is a consequence of global warming? Now, f- 54% said yes. I would have thought it could be closer to 100%. Yeah. Uh, 29% said it wasn't, but an incredible 17% said they didn't know. I mean, didn't know. I guess that's more on the side of agreeing than disagreeing. 
Maybe, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. It's maybe they, but, yeah, maybe they think, oh, could have been climate change, or it could have been mi- a mixture of things. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, but but uh, but, but yeah, twenty nine percent saying they they didn't think it was anyway. It's quite yeah, amazing. That's I would have thought disheartening. Uh, and on, on Energy Day, the, the, speaking of uh, the Financial Review. This was a while ago now, but it does, it's not going to happen until later in the year, so it's still relevant. Um, it's a reader journey, a full-page ad where they're involved with another mob, with a, a travel mob, won't name them, um, introducing the first AFR, Reader Journey, A Wine Odyssey by Private Jet. And it's only going to cost you, um, well, nearly 20 grand if you want to want a twin share and 21 grand if you want to have your sleep on your own or whatever. Um, and it's limited to 35 guests. And they're going to, they've got one of Australia's best-known wine experts taking you around the country. And they've got the itinerary here where they fly from. So you actually fly um, around New South Wales. You fly around Victoria, down to Tasmania, or across to South Australia, and then across to Perth and back. Um, or Western Australia, Margaret River and that area and back, um, all on a private jet. And I thought to myself, well, here's a paper that writes about climate change occasionally and, and tries to take it seriously, and you're whacking 35 people flying all over the country and back to taste wine in a <laughs> private jet. Um, I don't mind tasting wine, but uh, and these are going to be very expensive wines, no doubt. But... It's uh, it's extraordinary in terms of the climate change situation. I would have thought to to do yeah. that. Yeah, I mean, you might have thought a a different way to uh, to achieve. You could you could in fact, um, you know, they've got to get there. But if the wines are already here somewhere, you could put people in a central spot and let them taste them all in <laughs> one spot. What a novel idea! <laughs> <laughs> you might have to stagger that over a few days, or they'd be staggering out on one day, wouldn't they? But uh, uh, none, nonetheless, yeah. Although you know, the, 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 if, the, if they're wine tasting, they're supposed to spit it out, aren't they? Not drink it, but that's bizarre. technically, technically. Well, yeah, that kind mm-hmm. of goes to uh, what we've mentioned before about um, mm-hmm. the direction that tourism might take after pandemic times. Um, and more people wanting to more the people that have the means to um, d- choosing private ways of of travel, which tend to be much more fuel intensive. So it's not very surprising that this is like an offer that's being made, um, and also kind of is going in the direction of you know like the richest of the rich can still travel and. Um, experience like different places and then more and more people are um the rest of us are sort of trapped at home and then exposed by all the rich people (laughs) drinking drinking the somewhat cheaper wine yeah (laughs) (laughs) yes no doubt about that but also um on energy day i just thought i'd mention uh, because patty's going to talk about something else um but um the the fact that while all these companies are talking about their desire to get to net zero by 2050, all these resource companies, at the moment they're absolutely having a wonderful time saying what's happening in Ukraine is going to push up the price of energy, of oil and gas and coal, and they're all talking about making absolutely record profits. Um, uh, at the same time as 
there is this exposure that they're they're buying cheap credits overseas, which aren't really credits anyway, and so they're still you know they're not even offsetting their their so-called, which I think is ridiculous anyway. Well, you have to, if you're going to stop pollution, you stop pollution. You don't just mm. still do mm-hmm. it and offset, but never mind. Um, and also, um, the big emitters, uh, many of the big emitters are refusing to sign the Clean Energy Regulators Voluntary Scheme to monitor a company's carbon emissions. So they refuse to do that um, at the same time as they're screaming out for public subsidies for to investigate in, um, in sequestration, in burying a head in the sand, in burying so-called carbon that doesn't work anyway. They want, they want handouts for that. Um, at the same time as they're saying we're now going to make record profits, Woodside, in fact, was announced last week, expects to make massive profits out of what's happening in Russia at the same time as it's, uh, it's, it's talking about putting in solar, solar plants in various places. So they, on one side they say how wonderfully clean we are, on the other side they're desperate to make massive amounts of money out of coal and oil and gas. It's, uh, it's pretty extraordinary, but uh, it's not extraordinary. It's just how they, they operate, isn't it? That's, yeah. That's it. Mm. Um, but, uh, you know, we're, so we're now seeing the maps saying, isn't it wonderful? There's massive profits to be made from what's going on in the world while people, of course, are dying in a war. Yes. And, in fact, we'll play a CD when we get close to Paddy. I've got a, a – we'll play a, a track. Um, I'll tell you about it later, but it's related to the – it is related – sort of to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So we'll come mm. to that. But look, I was going to talk to you today, and I'm going to pour myself a bit of tea. you want oh a bit dear. more tea? I've, I'm still working right. away, oh, working okay, away okay, slowly. Okay. Look, you, you work um, for Earthworker, which is a co- collective, a worker, yeah. worker, co- co-op, worker collective. Um, you work in the cleaning company they've got. How does it operate? How, for, as a worker's point of view, how, how does the money operate? How do workers go as a collective? What, what's, the, what's the structure? Um, so I guess like we, uh, we've, we've branched off from Earthworker and, and Redgum is the, is the cleaning company that I'm a part of. Um, and basically we're all worker-owned. So once you've had a sort of six-month probationary period, you buy in to become a member um, and you basically have um, an equal say in how the business is run and all of the decisions that are made are sort of democratically decided um, and you all we all get like a, a flat pay rate um, no matter like what sort of seniority or like how long you've been in the business so yeah. <laughs> right. And and right and so when you say we when we all make decision making do you do you have regular meetings of workers to talk about where the company's going and what's going on? Yeah, so we have our fortnightly meetings between all workers uh and then we also have a board um that I, I am on the board, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, which mm. goes to show, you know, how inclusive it is because I didn't think that I was board uh, member material, but <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, and the board is sort of more responsible for like the, the financial um, stability of the co-op and, and those sort of like serious legal legal matters that need to be 
still dealt with. Mm. And you have to have fiduciary duties and all that sort of stuff, don't you? I mean, yeah. as a board member, so yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Um, so, but yeah, it's an interesting experience because, of course, uh, even a cooperative business is still we're still operating in the the broader capitalist system, and so um, it's this sort of balance balancing act between um, trying to create. Um, sort of alternative, like, um, little worlds, little bubbles uh, within capitalism that can sort of help, uh, hopefully, like, help people to imagine, um, like, different possibilities and try to pull back some sort of, like, worker power within a business. Um but yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, and workers can workers choose to be part time, full time, that sort of thing. Is there a, a choice given to workers? And what they um, so, at the moment, it's a fairly small business, so we we're still constrained by a lot of the things that like any other small business would be, and you know we don't have that much money, so um, we definitely like workers are very like it's very flexible how much you want to work. Um, but at the same time, we're like still trying to figure out how we can give ourselves part-time and full-time contracts. And currently everyone is still like on a casual um, mm. basis. So yeah, it's it's one of those things where like on the one hand, it's really good because we do have like a lot more power um, to decide when and how we work and um, there's been a few instances, especially like during this pandemic, where, um, you know, people have faced like challenges and needed time off. And um, like the cooperative has definitely been a lot more supportive of that happening than a normal business would be. But then at the same time, we still like have the sort of material constraints that every other business in capitalism has to deal with. Um, that sort of prevent us from being like even more radically different and able to accommodate like people's needs. Um, but yeah, I think it's like a, it's an ongoing, it's an ongoing sort of working towards the like best possible scenario that can be um, within the like wider existence of, of what like is happening in the world. Um, and yes, hopefully like more people will start cooperatives and we can like support each other. Yeah, it's a great idea. And, and, uh, when you say casual and people working flexible hours, uh, you're paid by the hour presumably therefore, are you? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. On a, on a stand, but everyone gets the same rate. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 Also, by the way, if any listeners are looking for a job, <laughs> <laughs> um, maybe I don't know if this is a charitable spruiking, um, but maybe I'll put the the details of Red Gum in the notes for this show. Um, if people can get in touch. Yeah. And, and cleaning. When you say cleaning, you're cleaning houses. You're cleaning businesses, or all, both. Uh, both. Um, yeah. So we do do. C- domestic cleaning um but we also we actually get like a very large um part of our business is cleaning the australian services union offices um and they're like a very like what would we do without them (laughs) um so yeah and we're sort of 
trying to find businesses that are sort of like aligned um, with our own values to to clean for. Um, and that's like another thing of cooperatives is that um, like part of it is uh, making sure that the work that you're doing and that the contracts that you're signing as a business um, still allow you to maintain autonomy over the decision making of the business so if we did sign like a huge contract with the victorian government to like clean clean their offices then that might like be uh that might be a concern for like how much say we have about yeah, how harvey we norman for instance exactly yeah jerry <laughs> <Yes. laughs> i'd love to have a book of co-op going like that yeah <laughs> Yes. So yeah, don't know whether I explain things very well, but there you go. <laughs> no, it's um, it's certainly interesting. And um, look, I'm going to hand you this this CD, by the way. Here we yes. go. Yes. Okay. Things going on radio, and we'll shortly play it. Um, in fact, we'll we'll play it now, and we'll get Paddy Moriarty on the line while we play it. It's um, look, I'll tell you why I'm playing this because back in World War Two, a number of songs were written when. The um, the Nazis invaded what was then the Soviet Union, and um, we, I think we all recall that you know, that was almost um, what defeated Nazism and and the you know massive numbers who died on that front. Um, but a number of songs were written around that time, and this one is called Native Land. It's track ten, by the way. Uh, Zeb, just to let you know, in case we go through have to go through ten to get there. Um, <laughs> Written by a bloke I never heard of before called Isaac Donievsky, who died in 1955. But um, Paul Robeson, the Afro-American great bass, who, um, of course, for his communism, suffered incredibly in his own country. He lost his um, his passport. He was even he was even um, um, phased out. Whatever the word is, shaded out. What's the word again for when you brushed out? Brushed out from yep. a photo of his of his college football team in which he was the champion player. So it's just this gap, which was Paul Robeson. Um, uh, and of course, we many people know the the Robeson story. He came here and was the first person to sing at the Opera House while it was under construction. Actually, it was still under, and he sang to the workers there. Um, and I went to a concert of his. I was in the front row, and I, he actually spat on me, believe it or not, because I was in the front row under the <laughs> microphone. But anyway, that's another question. <laughs> what a good uh, moment! <laughs> and uh, but he um, he made these songs, and they became they were played across Russia, so across the Soviet Union as it was then. So during the World Second World War, he was. Um, he was well known in the Soviet Union, and of course he was a great supporter of. He was, you know, something of a Stalinist, unfortunately. But um, as a Black American, I guess he he believed Russia really was a, a land of freedom at that time. This is a song called "Native Land." It's a short one; it's only a bit over two minutes, but it's um, it's one of the songs that was written during the invasion of Russia by the Nazis. And I'm playing it just because, of course, at the moment we've got Russia doing the very reverse and and attacking another country. Um, unfortunately, um, they are, uh, the Western world has been painted as absolutely pure in all this, which they're not, but none, and they're being so hypocritical, but nonetheless it doesn't either justify what, what Putin's doing. But this song's called Native Land. It's Paul Robeson, um, and it was recorded during the Second World War. Yes. Um, I will just play one CSA beforehand just to figure out the CD player. Oh, Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I 
when I was new to Melbourne, I found a footnote once fly on the road and I had like this feast with a carrot and carrots are my favorite vegetable. Yeah, I think they were asking for help doing stuff and I got in touch. We, I guess, rescue food. That would otherwise go to waste. I like the aspect of sharing food and not making anyone feel obligated to pay anything for it. We make a real point at Food Not Bombs of involving everyone who wants to be involved in whichever part they want to be involved in. For more information, go to fnbmelb.noblogs.org. Food Not Bombs is a 3CR supporter. Okay, and uh, Patty Moriarty's on the line. Patty, that would have um, tested your Russian, I assume, that last bit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, we played that, we pre-announced it, but um, it was Paul Robeson, of course, and it's a song that was recorded during the first Second World War, a Russian song that um, he, he made famous in Russia, actually, and... Uh, I played it because that's when the Soviet Union was being attacked by Nazis and invaded, and because of what Russia's doing today, with, there is a connection, I guess. Yeah. Um, so there we are. Um, Paddy Moriarty, of course, adjunct professor at Monash. And Paddy, today we're going to talk about um, rare earths um, and the problems they're creating. Around the world, we're seeing complaints coming from parts of Australia, but particularly Malaysia, um, Chile. Uh, the Congo, Tasmania, for that matter, down here, um, 
around the world we're seeing people complaining about the impacts of lithium, either the mining of it or the, the production processes of it. Um, is there a problem here? Because it's, it's also mooted, of course, as the great solution to climate change as it, as, it, um, as it goes into batteries, which they say will allow us to store energy and, um, and use renewables. Well, just a point of clarification first. Uh, lithium is not a rare earth. Uh, the rare oh, earth well, okay, re- yeah. refers to a, to a, a group <laughs> right. in the Mistake in number the one, Kevin, go on, yeah. Yeah, it refers to a group in the periodic table, not all of which are rare. Uh, lithium, of course, is a preferred element because it's the uh, lightest metal um, with a, um, a low atomic number of two or whatever it is. And, uh, yes, it's... Mining in certain cases, does, certainly in Malaysia and a number of other places, it does uh, produce problems. Another problem of lithium is, of course, that the, uh, the supply might be constrained because certain countries, uh, it's only produced in a small group of countries. And uh, given the present uncertain world, uh, this can be a problem if you have to import it. Australia does have um, some reserves. Uh, now... Uh, and of course, given that batteries are, um, well, lithium ion batteries are the preferred type for electric vehicles and so on, uh, there's enormous demand for, for lithium. And if you have a look at the forecasts for electric vehicles, and some of them, for instance, the International Energy Agency are, are predicting, you know, hundreds of millions of electric vehicles by 240 or so. So uh, that, that would mean that the demand for lithium for vehicles alone would greatly increase. Uh, as regards the other elements um, in the uh, rare earth group, uh, the Congo especially is an area where these are mined. It's um, not only the environmental problems there, but it's also the use of child labour, uh, which is, as they say today, concerning. Uh, what happens, especially one of the ways of dealing with um, the waste developed, because you t- we're talking about very small percentage of the ore is actually a vanishingly small percentage of the ore is is the uh, target metal which means of course that for every tonne you mine uh, or every tonne of say pure cobalt you get there's hundreds of tonnes of uh, waste and the preferred method of dealing with this waste is to build is often to build tailings dams unfortunately tailings dams fail very often partly because um, they're pure cost there's no benefit in them and you might remember there was a devastating tailing stamp failure in uh, in in Brazil. There were two, in fact, weren't there? there yeah, was one, two, I think, which yeah, caused yeah. widespread environmental damage. It costs money to build them properly, and uh, nobody wants to spend that money, especially if it's in the Congo or someplace where uh, uh, <laughs> where the OECD... Uh, Congo is not a member of the OECD. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Very much not. In fact, Bob Brown, um, the Greens, ex-Greens leader, of course, uh, in a speech late last year, he got stuck into Twiggy Forest because Twiggy Forest is always promoting his uh, green credentials. But he said that Forest uh, plans to build a $100 billion huge dam on the Congo River uh, or this, as part of a, part of a lithium project, um, threatening rainforests, wildlife and the homes of thousands of people, as well as dam... He also wants to dam Papua New Guinea... And um, and a wind farm in Tasmania that threatens Aboriginal sites, etc. But he he points out the 
uh, President of the um, Forest had signed an agreement with the President of the Democratic Republic of Congo to dam the world's second biggest river um, and with the Prime Minister of PNG to do theirs. So uh, these are quite damaging, obviously. Yeah, there are... um there are already large dams on the on the Congo, but I think in in discharge terms, second half to the Amazon, the Amazon's got 17% of the world's all rivers discharged. I think the Congo has 4%, which is next. So um, yes, there are, have been for a long time ambitious plans to put um, uh, more hydro dams on the uh, on the Congo for um, you know aluminium smelting and so on. Uh, yes, I, I think it's been realised for some time now that. Large hydro dams can have very serious environmental uh, consequences. Uh, even I think the uh, you know the World Commission on Dams has realised this. And um, well, we have to be very careful. I, I don't think we're going to see a large increase in the number of dams. That is, if if environmental consequences are taken seriously. Um, and another factor, of course, is that given the changing climate, I mean. Uh, hydro dams, of course, are very dependent upon rainfall in the in the catchment area and river flows. And given the um, changing climate, uh, this can mean that it's the actual certainty of future river flows is can be a problem. Which means that your um, your flows of cash can can be a problem. For instance, in the Amazon, they claim that. Clearing part of the Amazon actually improves river flow uh, because it lowers evapotranspiration from trees. But eventually, maybe at the 25% clearance of the Amazon, what happens is that uh, the the way rainfall falls in the Congo, in the Amazon, is that it rains in one part, it then evaporates and drops down further in the Amazon and so on. And that would be... um, uh, stifled if, in fact, uh, forest clearance reaches a, a certain amount. So the point is here. Here is that um, in the Congo Basin, which of course is also a very important tropical forest region, um, the more you clear, uh, you can have problems with, with future uh, river flow levels, which could undermine the basis of of the hydro dam. Mm. Yeah, and um, I notice also uh, Rio Tinto, for instance, it's. Um it's planning a, um, a lithium extraction mine in um, in South America, a place called Salar del Rincon, um, but it's it's using a Brines project, um, Brines um, project yeah, uh, system, and it says instead of using evaporation ponds in concentrate uh, to concentrate the lithium, it will use a direct lithium extraction method where the groundwater is pumped into a processing plant and a resin used to extract the lithium before the groundwater is returned underground. Rio believes the method is more environmentally friendly given less of the scarce water resources in the high deserts of the Andes Mountains are lost to evaporation. But it sounds pretty dangerous to me in terms of what they're going to do and water coming and going and what what can happen to it. It's it's worth exploring. It may be better than the other alternatives. I I don't know enough about it to, to actually comment. Um, but at least they seem to be aware of the environmental problems of lithium production. Yeah, I know that it, in the Chile, uh, present it's done by evaporation ponds and so on. Yeah. Yeah, and of course here last year we had one of the rare occasions where an environmental study rejected a proposal, which was down in East Gippsland, to um, extract mineral sands, which was for rare earths and um, rare metals. 
um, because of its danger to it was going to impact on nearby um, nearby farms that that provide most of the food for Melbourne, and there were organic farms nearby plus two rivers that flow into into um, Lake's entrance, and it was going to impact also, they said, on the, the fishing industry. So we actually saw one knocked back here on environmental grounds. Well, that's very, very rare. Yeah, yeah very <laughs> rare. There were two in one year. It's unbelievable, Paddy, because <laughs> the Hastings one was knocked back as well, the floating LNG plant. Oh, yes, of course, yes, yes, yes. And, Paddy, yeah. um, on the other side of the use of lithium and, and rare earths, yeah. what tends to happen to batteries... Um, you know, when we put them in the e-waste and all, all the rest of that stuff, how much of it, how much of the components can be and do get recycled and how much of it just sort of goes? It, well, that's a very good point. In fact, there's quite a bit written about uh, battery recycling now. One of the problems is with with, with, uh, with advances in the technical efficiency, for instance, take uh, three-way catalytic catalytic converters in ordinary uh, internal combustion engine cars, you, you might want to get the platinum recycled. The trouble is that as you increase the the, uh, the technical efficiency of, of the use of platinum, in other words, you use less and less platinum in a three-way catalytic, catalytic converter, the economics of recycling de- decrease because there isn't enough pl- uh, platinum to actually extract. Mm-hmm. So, so there, there is a conflict there. And... Um, I think this similar things can happen with, um, well, with electronic uh, goods in general, with a variety of materials used, and um, and and with lithium batteries. Yeah, getting on to batteries, Paddy. Um, they, they, you know, obviously, you mentioned earlier about the fact they're saying we'll have so many electric cars by whenever twenty forty or something. Um, but yeah, you. you, you they are talking about the fact that we could start running out desperately of the, the of the various ingredients needed to go into that battery. So um, there's bound to be, in fact, a stampede of people looking, trying to find these these things around the world in the next um, next few years, which could, in fact, throw up further environmental problems, couldn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the problems is it's not only uh, say you know batteries and electric vehicles, um, even um, Renewable energy itself uses. Uh, uh, I saw a figure which said that per gigawatt of uh, of uh, electricity capacity, um, re- renewable energy uses about six times as much materials uh, as do fossil fuel power plants. Uh, in other words, and this is because they have very large input costs for construction. For instance, a, a wind turbine, apart from the plastics and the blades, it needs a lot of steel for the um, column, which may be, you know, um, 100 metres high, and also for the foundations, uh, concrete in the foundations, to stop the thing falling over from the winds, which is, after all, the whole point point of it is to stop the wind, <laughs> and that transfers a lot of energy to the... Uh, a lot of stresses to the foundations. Uh, so, um, especially the, um, you know, the motors in uh, wind turbines and... Uh, the various uh, elements in photovoltaic cells and so on use a lot of um, fairly rare minerals, and that could be a, a constraint on on the on the future production of um, renew- of renewable energy. Mm. And of course, increasingly we're talking about big batteries, so which will store the hope that they'll store renewable electricity, so it can be used 
as they say, when the sun don't shine and the, the wind don't blow. Um, are they... Are they viable, do you think, these days? Well, it depends. I mean, if you're talking about Europe, where, the, where you have a four-month without, you know, where you won't get anything from solar cells, may, maybe, um, you can have periods of several days in which you don't get any wind or solar energy. And um, it's, it'd take a lot of batteries to, to tide over those sort of periods. So, um, you know, they're looking at alternative methods of energy storage. One is... Uh, turkey nests you might have heard of these in other words where you actually just build um on level ground you just build four walls around an area and um put put water in it and use it as a uh, you know as a, as a pump water storage thing the other one of course is to move to a hydrogen economy which would have certain benefits because um the hydrogen can be used in fuel cells either in uh, residences and buildings or in vehicles so um, without the need for instance if you have intermittent renewable energy then um, you have this problem either if you have a lot of it then either you have to dump electricity which happens or you've got to store it uh, one method would be to convert to hydrogen which could then be used directly uh, in fuel cells whereas if you store it say um, electricity in batteries or in um, compressed uh, underground compressed air storage, then what you've got to do is, uh, is convert that back to mains electricity and then you have to um, uh, store it in a battery. Oh, sorry, after you've stored it in a battery, you've then got to convert it back to electricity and so on. So there's a lot of uh, losses in a uh, longer energy conversion chain. And, of course, you've got to pay for things like batteries and so on as well. So it, you try to simplify the energy chain, but uh, and batteries don't do that very well. Mm. On the positive, well, is there a positive side? On the positive side, I mean, these things are, a, are an attempt to to stop using fossil fuels. So is there a a clean, environmentally proper way of extracting these minerals without causing the environmental problems we're talking about? Well, I re in my writing, I refer to ESME, that is, ecosystem maintenance energy costs. In other words, uh, what you've got to do is include as input costs the cost of restoring the environment. In other words, well, uh, for instance, we know this with, say, uh, uh, carbon dioxide released from fossil fuels, the energy cost would be the cost of um, carbon capture and storage and so on, which, of course, is very expensive. But with, It doesn't um, work. <laughs> with these, uh, with uh, these minerals, I mentioned before about building safe tailings dams and other um, preventing local exposures uh, and so on. And and this, of course, would then increase the energy costs of, of renewable energies, which would um, make them more expensive and uh, also uh, a bit less viable. My, my, what I think has to happen is that we're going to have to use less energy. We're going to have to move to renewable energy, but we're also going to have to use a lot less energy than we do at present. Mm. Yeah. Have have people done the calculations of, like, what is the, uh, I suppose, like, what is the, like, possible kind of um, use of energy, I don't know, like, per capita or something, um, for that to be sustainable? 
Yes, there's been very there've been various attempts. Um, some talk about the the year but two kilowatt society, which you know everyone in in the world using using two kilowatt a day uh, power. Um, that's probably a bit high, uh, but yeah. So so what what we have to try to do is use less total energy. We, we presently use about six hundred. Uh, uh, EJ, uh, that is uh, exajoule. That's <laughs> a lot of. It's ten to the eighteen joule, um, which is too much. We're going to have to cut that back, and we're also going to have to use it in a more equ- equitable manner, uh, which is a problem as well. So there's two things. Remember, uh, Ivan Illich wrote a book fifty years ago called Energy and Equity. That's the that's the two worries we have today as well. Mm-hmm. You've got a book coming out shortly too. You you deal with this, don't you, in that book, or do you? Yep. Yep, um, it's coming bit, out. A bit of a free I'll, plug here, Paddy, really. But. Yeah, I'll, I'll be getting the proofs in the next two or three days. And, um, yes, it'll, it'll come out next month, I think, which is good. Mm. And it's called? Uh, it's called Switching Off, uh, uh, Meeting Our Energy Needs in a, in a Constrained Future. Mm. But how do you convince them? I mean, a lot of people talk about the fact, and we've talked about it for a long time, because, uh, in fact... The business world, in terms of its dealing with energy, talks talks about almost the exponential growth all the time, and we have to deal with that. They say make it renewable, but but in fact, how do you get across to people the need that we really have to go the other way? Very, it's very difficult. Yeah, look, that's probably one of the most entrenched beliefs in the world. You know, there's apart from a, a very few people living in the natural state, you know, hundreds of gatherers and so on. The world seems seems committed to um, to to continued economic growth. Uh, also, uh, economic growth. Uh, the end of economic growth is opposed by is opposed by corporations because they feel that it'll rightly probably that it'll lead to a, a, a diminution of their power to to control the the political process, and they're probably right there. <laughs> So it's going to be very difficult to do. Um, reality may intrude, you know, just the same as eventually it will in climate change. That just uh, can, in fact, um, one the GDP is the is the economist measure of you know, that's the way economic progress is measured. But there are alternatives. One of them is the um, a genuine progress indicator. And that shows that while the GDP per capita in a number of uh, Western countries like Australia is increasing, the uh, genuine progress indicator is going down. In other words, for most people, it's not getting better. And if that gets through to more people, who knows? Mm. Yeah, I feel like a lot of people would would feel that. Um, You know, even if they don't have the, the numbers, they would just, like, feel that that was happening. Yeah, well, in a more unequal society, that's... It's because the general program, the uh, genuine progress indicator includes uh, equality as one of its um, uh, one of its parameters in evaluating the general mm. progress indicator. And of course, places we talked about earlier, like the Congo, I'm sure that the the people of the Congo won't feel too many of the benefits of uh, of Twitty's uh, mine there. Yeah, um, well, some will, the miners, you know, but apparently in the areas where where these mine, uh, the air pollution is very bad from these uh, from these toxic metals. So there is that problem as well. 
Yeah, and uh, and hydrogen. You mentioned hydrogen. It's um, it's there seem to be advances there pretty quickly. Uh, I know you've been sceptical of it for a while, but but are you now more in line? Well, you you now think it's got a future that you didn't see a few years ago. I've just written another article. I've written six or seven for the International Journal of Hydrogen Energy, so I'm not totally opposed to it. But I can't see it happening in the next two decades. Um, after that, it has certain advantages in the long run, key advantages, which I think will mean that we will see a lot more hydrogen produced, but it won't be for several decades, which means that it can't do anything about the present climate crisis we've got to solve in the next two decades or so. So um, it's a distraction in a sense from the real problem, which is we're going to have to cut down energy uh, by, by cutting down fossil fuel use. And, um, and if we cut down fossil fuel use, that will leave in countries like Australia uh, excess capacity. And uh, that'll be even less reason to build new um, renewable energy capacity because we'll have spare capacity. So, um, yeah, I... As I say, I'm sceptical about hydrogen over the next two decades. There do seem to be some slow learners in the world, Paddy, because we've, um, we've had what they're now calling once-in-a-thousand-year floods, which seem to be the, the first flood since the once-in-a-thousand-year floods two years ago, which were the same as the one the year before that. <laughs> um, so... Are they are they pretty slow learners, or we just uh, want to put their head in the sand like they want to bury CO two? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, at least with uh, extreme weather, that is the uh, heat waves, um, floods, and so on. This is the only way in which ordinary people will wake up to the fact that climate change is occurring. I mean, saying that the temperature this year is 0.1 degrees warmer than last year means nothing because in temperate climates like ours, a uh, temperature can vary about 20 degrees in one day. You know, So it's only extreme events that actually activate people to get them to realise that something's happening. Yeah, interestingly, um, there was an article in The Age that was saying that the state Liberals... Um, have finally adopted a net zero target, um, which is, I don't know, I, I feel like people won't really be that um, ex- overjoyed, uh, but it, it does seem like a a surprising step forward. Um, and maybe it's indicating just like, you know, the baby steps uh, are happening. Yeah. Well, there's, an old, there's a French saying by, I think, a woman who, as she was executed, uh, no, um, at, on the guillotine, saying that uh, hypocrisy is the homage that vice pays to, to virtue. It's a first step. I, I, I agree. Just even acknowledging that there's a problem. I mean, I'm sure the policies they have to support um, zero uh, emissions just aren't there or won't mm-hmm. work. Yeah, it's just mm. at least just saying it's something. Yeah, it is a first baby step. Agreed. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty extraordinary. I was quoting earlier uh, a, a survey the Financial Review did of its own readership, <coughs> which are considered to be sort of business readership, and 29% said they didn't believe the what was happening in the floods were to do with climate change, and 17% said they weren't sure they didn't know. And I thought, they're pretty amazing figures for people who are supposed to be thinkers. Yeah, um, well, it's easy when the, when the floods aren't, aren't in your area. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Also, um, well, they found in, in America that, like, in counties that have experienced extreme weather, 
that the people there are more likely to believe in climate change than in areas where they haven't. So it's personal experience can count a lot there. Yeah, and the boardrooms, of course, we also mentioned earlier, just to cheer us up no end, that while they're talking about um, net zero by 2050, but most of that's with offsets rather than stopping polluting anyway, uh, the big resort, the big fossil companies are rubbing their hands saying the invasion of, of Ukraine means that there's massive profits to be made in coal, gas and oil. So uh, they don't seem to have seen the light. Well, perhaps well, they have. Uh, oil offsets, I mean, carbon offsets are, are very good for banks as well. They don't seem to help much as lowering <laughs> carbon emissions. But it's like selling indulgences, which we agreed was a bad idea 500 years ago. <laughs> That's right. As a, as a Catholic schoolboy, Paddy, you would have known all that, wouldn't you? <laughs> Yeah, look, we're running out of time, but um, look, thanks for your time this morning. And um, and anything to finish up on? I mean, we you, you're right. I mean, the, the the solution lies in using less energy. But you know, again, we I guess we keep asking it. But we, how do we get there? We're not getting there, are we? <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, in fact, the the energy reductions that have occurred in OECD countries have been mainly mainly because of the de, industrialization in other words there's been a big increase in energy use in China because it's the world world's manufacturer so that's enabled us to reduce our energy but overall in the world what we're finding is that fossil fuel use is increasing along with renewable energy use far from substituting both are, are in fact in, in increasing at the same time yeah, all right, Paddy. We're going to have to go. It's 58 and we've got to get out of the studio. But um, thanks for your time. We'll talk to you again. And, in fact, we'll talk to you about that book you're bringing out. And um, when it comes out, a bit of payola here, we're going to get a copy of it. Yeah, OK. Thanks, Kevin. Bye, then. OK. Thanks, Paddy. Paddy Moriarty. It's Jack Jack, professor at Monash. Um, and, Zeb, uh, thanks for your go this morning. Thanks for your time. Thanks for telling us about this the, the co-op. Yeah, no worries. Thank you, Kevin. And next week's housing with the usual... Kate, yes. Kate Shaw, we're going to have on next week, I think. Yeah, uh, maybe Jack Burden. Yeah, yep. Shane, Shane McGrath. Well, yep. They'll all be around. All the, the, all usual, the, the usual suspects yes. are here next week. Okay, that's it. Say goodbye, Zeb. Thank yourself. Yeah, you're listening. Oh, you have been listening to City Limits on 3CR, and stay tuned for Anarchist World this week. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.